Challenging Paradigm X. What is futurology and is the study of futures at all scientific? Is being agile the opposite of being resilient? What are the biggest challenges when it comes to initiating deep transformation in organizations? Can we just continue exploiting our planet as artificial intelligence will eventually become our savior? And what opportunities does the corona pandemic create for us? My guest today is Kai Gondlach. He is a mission-driven and future-enthusiastic futurologist. That means he is a futures scientist in his case with a background in sociology, political sciences and futures research. He has experience as an entrepreneur, consults organizations and still does academic work in the field of the futures. Apart from that, he works as a professional keynote speaker, including a TEDx talk and has his own podcast. So if you're interested in future topics with a positive outlook, stay tuned. Today I'm here with Kai. Good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Who are you? Who am I? One of the biggest questions I think in the universe, right? Why am I here? My name is Kai. I have been born and raised in the very north of Germany, but actually my parents didn't come from there. But I think what describes me the best is I'm a very enthusiastic person when it comes to future questions. And that's part of my job description as well. So I'm a futurologist, future scientist, if you will. And I like both the technological stuff as well as the societal stuff, the political stuff. And that's why I, I'm quite constantly engaged in researching futurist topics, uh, reading studies, uh, writing studies, writing blog posts, doing my own podcast. Essentially, I think I, I like to think about futures and visions. Um, I'd like to ant anticipate basically all of that and why are there political parties, for example, that try to get back to like pre-modern times, basically conservative. But why is there also so many constraints in, in the society that try to undermine basically the visionary parts of what futurists or futurologists like us basically do and talk about. So it's interesting to study humankind, basically, and with a certain perspective on, on futures. That's what I do. Okay. And why do you do what you do? I think because it's fun, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I think when I started working or being an employee some 10 years ago, I was thrown basically after my bachelor's thesis into this labor market with employers and the job market and you have to apply for many many jobs to get one feedback or so and then you get into the machinery and then you some somehow realize that building your own career or whatsoever always involves outsmarting or outcompeting other people and of course i mean growing on your own but then i i had some one or two years in in a very big corporation dax 30 corporation and I, and I got, got to know all the ups and downs of the people who were working there. Some only been there for a couple of years and some of them like for 30 years and already expecting their pension plans. And what stroke me the most, I think, was that many of them didn't really love what they were doing. They were good at their job, no, no question at all. And some of them had a, a small path of career behind them. Some of them were like looking into the future, like to get the next level and so on. But I rarely encountered someone who was really like purposefully doing and loving what they're doing. Yeah, and then I found out that you could study uh, future science or futures research. And I thought that sounds so cool because me being someone who studied uh, social sciences and political sciences before, I, I knew that there's more to be done and no more to be like um, researched or focused on than just like to look back in history. And I, and I love history and I'm a totally history dude. But on the other hand, uh, most of the studies I encountered back then were always like describing what already had happened long ago and then not even like deriving from that what was really needed to be done. So giving tips for politicians or for decision makers in, in economy. And then I, yeah, then I found out that you could study that futures research program in, in Berlin, what I did. Uh, and I loved it because it was like so 
interdisciplinary. So we learned so many things about so many industries or studies, like for instance, economical studies or um, social studies, then pedagogic studies, or I don't know, everything studies, a lot of which involved sustainability studies or gender studies. So it was like such a packed plan in two years only. And after that, we got like the certificate, which said, you are now the master of the future, <laughs> basically. Well, okay, not really, but uh, master of arts uh, of future science. And I love that because uh, there were so many new like possibilities or opportunities for me to realize what I loved, which was or still is not just researching on past events, but also think what could happen next and what could the development be like in uh, 10 or 50 or 100 years and then backcast what needs to be done to achieve one desirable future. Because I think that's one one very important aspect of future studies that yeah, very few people I think know. It's not just about researching very objectively what could happen. Yeah, that's one very important part. But necessarily it's so important to anticipate what you would like to happen next. And we as a society, every group, every system, every societal system, and it starts with my own mind, everything like is, is part or uh, subject of, of ambiguity and complexity and so much change and volatility and all that, of course. But the fact, the, the fun fact and also the challenging fact is that barely you ever meet someone, even an organization or a small group of people, let it be a family or so, who really has thought about their own futures. And I deliberately say futures, not just future. Every one of us thinks about future all the time. As soon as we stand up from bed in the morning or we leave the house to, to go to the groceries, grocery store or supermarket or we meet up with friends in the evening, which is um, possible finally again, we always anticipate what could happen. In the first place, we we uh, dress ourselves up. We need to uh, wear clothes. Sometimes we, we take an umbrella because we looked up at the weather forecast and it said it there's a likelihood that it's going to rain tonight. And so we are pre prepared. But the, the more time you go into the future and the bigger the systems are, obviously, but not really obviously because we too less, uh, we anticipate that really as a society, um, then it gets complex and complicated. And of course, it's not, uh, there's not like the equivalent answer to the umbrella in the evening for a society in 10 years. So let it be, or for example, the, the cli climate crisis. I think 99.9% .9 of scientists agree that we have a climate crisis, which has been like strongly made by humankind, of course, that's like the Anthropocene. Um, so we agree on that fact, but it's so difficult to agree on which measures to be taken to like really find out what is happening right now in the Arctic for the glaciers, for example, or for the rising sea levels or for environmental refugees and so on and so forth. It's really difficult to agree on an agenda to avoid certain scenarios to, to take place. And that's basically one of one, one of the most political aspects of my job to support those organizations and institutions that are there to yeah, formulate, to, to to create or to decide on what actually needs to happen. And that's a very interesting job because I have to, or I get to meet interesting people in institutions. I, I think we're in the same boat here. But on the other hand, it's sometimes I would call it like a very high or strong responsibility because on, on the like on the screen, People who are listening to us right now also see us in, in the entertaining mode. And of course, that's part of the job to deliver the scientific facts and f uh, visions of the futures, of course. But on the other hand, it's so important that those the, the people who listen to us and uh, take action after that, that the right, yeah, <laughs> ethically right or correct stuff is being delivered, actually. Please tell me. Did you, uh, along your studies or beforehand uh, or also afterwards, have any uh, epiphanies or turning points that would lead you to do what you do now that would change your perspective drastically or your perception drastically? 
Yes, numerous, I think. <laughs> so the first thing I think is the constellation of my family members, probably. It happens to be that my father is pretty old for my age, or I am pretty young for being his son. I or he was 53 years old when I was born, which leads to the situation that I basically have a father who's the same age of the grandfather of my friends. So we have an intergenerational education, basically, in, in the family, which is great. So he was was experiencing the Second World War. Imagine that. So he was born in 1934. So he, he was already like conscious when all that shit happened. Being born in, in the west of Germany and then grown up in what is today the Czech Republic, at least for a few years. I think that that's the first thing which strongly influenced how I look into like reality or futures or history as well. And I'm really grateful for that experience and for from up until today, long, very deep talks with my dad, which is really, really cool. On, on the other hand, I had a teacher in high school from the fifth until eighth grade, I think, was uh, Mr. Dharma. Rest in peace, Mr. Dharma, because he suddenly and unexpectedly passed away when I think I was in, in the eighth class, class. But he was a really nice mentor for many of us in my class. And he used to teach us this saying, this motto from, from the scouts, which is be prepared. I, I never encountered scouts, actually, uh, unfortunately. But I think this be prepared thing, it started off with do your homework, of course. <laughs> this was the first thing. So when you come back from weekend and uh, last Monday, yes, there will be school and you will have had homework. And if you won't have done them, there's going to be like, he's going to be angry or stuff like that. Uh, but on the other hand, he like, he was able to teach us like the implicit factors what I only know today and I'm able to be happy about or thankful about is that the aspects of futures generally of course, imply that you need to be prepared for certain scenarios. And even if you, and going back to the example from earlier, if you take your umbrella to the evening and, it, and it's not going to rain, be happy about that fact that you carried it along. And even if you didn't use it, it's cool uh, because you were prepared for, for another scenario. And the same goes for, I, I don't know, insurances or stuff. Sometimes there's even this scenario of the self-fulfilling prophecies or the self-defying prophecies. Another example is um, if you prepare for a fight with a family member because you think there's something that needs to be like spelled out and you ex expect the other person to be like angry at you and yell at you and so on. And you like anticipate this situation beforehand and then you go into the situation and you find out that he or she is very grateful that you bring that up finally, that one topic that has been like between you like for years. And then you, you would have been prepared for um, the fight or the, the argument. And on the other hand, maybe your way of phrasing things already has changed before you even started that conversation. And so you learned through your own anticipation of the future, which is great, because I think in some so many situations, you, we as a society as well can learn so much things on, I think, low level like in general of those situations. Like my, my teacher in the sixth grade told us like to be prepared and just go through your mind and uh, play through some scenarios you could think of that really helped me a lot. And I think there were some people that really were influential in, in the past six years. And the first thing was when I started my job here in Leipzig. I moved to Leipzig six years ago, yeah, in 2015. Great city, by the way. Because my, my today good friend Jan, he was back then the chairman of a, a think tank like a trend research think tank. And they just uh, started off building up a new uh, research of, or foresight branch. Back then we were like 11 people or 12, I, th I don't know exactly. And Jan called me and, and said, I, I saw your profile on, I think, LinkedIn or Zing or I don't know. And it says that you studied future sciences. This is so cool, let's talk. And I was like, okay, let's talk. And then so we did, and it was uh, 2014, I think, when he called me and, and then we met up in Berlin because back then I was living in Potsdam in Berlin. Um, and we had this really nice talk and, and had a coffee, afterwards a beer, I think. And it was like magic and chemi chemistry between us. It was really, really cool. Uh, then one of my main tasks for four years was like to build up in that think tank the scientific method of the Foresight team, which I did. And in, during that time, the company grew from those 12 peeps uh, to over 60, quadrupled, basically which was not that healthy for the organization and uh, also not the friendship between some of the people there, not involving me, of course. <laughs> but then in 2019, I, I left the company and 
it, it wasn't all that easy to leave something brilliant like that behind. But on the other hand, I was looking ahead into a great future of being self-employed and freelancing and doing the stuff I love and leaving out some of the organizational stress, which always comes with being inside a corporate uh, company. Yeah, but still, uh, I recently met him again, Jan, and we had a mixture of vacation and work together in Bulgaria, which we did like for a couple of years, at least once a year. And it's, it's like one of the, how to, how to say that, biggest mind-changing experiences I, I ever had in, in my life, I think, until now I'm... I'm around 33, 34 years old. And I think that one human being has changed so much on the one hand, like helping me to professionalize my futuristic for future logistic path to something like a career, I don't know. And as well, on the other hand, to find out more about myself and to be more confident uh, in public speaking, for example, or in public guitar playing, because that's our, our shared hobby is uh, playing the guitar and uh, sing along at the, the campfire, not more. <laughs> I've done small stages, but that's definitely enough. But that's, yeah, this interaction with this one person has changed so much and I'm so grateful for this human being. Yeah, I think that's, that are like the, the main pillars in establishing the route to what I'm to what I'm now professionally speaking. So you you talked about building up the future parts in the scientific way in the company. And for most people, f future and science doesn't seem to go along. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of uh, what it means to be scientific when it comes to future? Sure. That's actually still subject of a discussion inside the scientific community, because a future implies that it's not there, actually. And so it's really tough to study something which actually doesn't exist. But that's also like the one crucial thing that future sciences always imply. So we don't really study the future and we don't really predict even or forecast the future. The main task, in, in my opinion, is to Uh, anticipate the future or the images of the futures which already exist in the minds of people or of cultures or of organizations. Let me give you like an example or, or, or our listeners one example of how that can look like. So one classic business case is to have a customer, a client, uh, one company, say from the insurance company needs like an outlook into the future. And so they call and they say, dear Kai, We need this uh, this report, let's call it a trend study. What's going to happen in our environment, so in the economic, in the ecologic, in the um, political, uh, regulatory, societal and so forth environment? Uh, what about those things we don't really have on our radar already? How could they change and give us like a glimpse into the future in, in your glass ball what is likely to happen? And then let's talk about the things we could already prepare in terms of like strategic recommendations or business model ideation sessions and so on. And so I or we as a, as a think tank back then, we start investigating like for a couple of months what the actually the first step is like to understand the business model, because even even like in, in something like the insurance industry, every company has its own business model. How is the revenue being generated or how do we um, talk to our clients or our customers? Is it B2B? Is it B2C? And so on. So at first, we, we need to understand what really is the environment of this particular client. And then we, we start investigating, like with online research, of course, uh, we read lots of papers, we read lots of studies um, published in magazines or scientific journals. And of course, we have our tools like trend radars, uh, which tell us like a trend Google, if you will, what are the most important trend agglomerations, basically. Is it that important for the insurance industry to deal with quantum security? I don't know. Or with distributed ledger technology? Or is it more important to look at the European Union regulatory level and to talk to some experts from the parliament or from the EU commission? I don't know. And then the next step, obviously, is to talk to those people. So we do lots of what we call expert interviews. And what we ask them is not like to read out their press papers or things they would publish two months later anyway. The core idea is to identify those people who have strong influence inside a political system or inside the economical system, I don't know, uh, or in the tech area, and ask them what they 
would v think is doable in some years of time or what is likely. And we always, so there's a very specific interrogation system actually, because it's not that easy to really get those people to talk in futures. Because always, like, it's natural to, to stick to your role inside the society. If you ask like the CEO of, a, of an insurance company how he or she um, anticipates like the year 2040, they will basically replicate the strategy papers they have worked on like for the past five years. And you need to like instantly sense this moment <clears throat> when they're actually stuck in the history or in the, in the present. Because you want like something more of them and, and nobody wants to read a study uh, which basically like only summarizes all those press and strategic and PR papers from companies that could be done by anyone. Yeah, uh, that's the first thing. So we talk to experts and an expert can also be like uh, someone um, who has not even the big title of CEO or, or a lead researcher. But after we did this first round of, of questions and interviews, we summarized internally for intent purposes uh, those uh, findings. And then we pick out those things, those aspects we, we had as a result, basically from the first wave. And then we, the, we pick those aspects that are very, very uncertain, but potentially very influential. So one could say like things like wildcards inside a branch or an industry. So things like, is it possible that there's going to be an insurance company which basically only relies on code? And there is none, no employees, no employer, no CEO. It's only but nothing but code. Is that doable? And so we have this thesis and we ask the same experts plus an extended panel um, of more experts. <clears throat> what do you think? Is it likely? Is it doable? And the moment we have phrased this thesis, one of those people anyway will do it. <laughs> so uh, we have like a very, very high likelihood that things are going to change. Yeah, and in the end, I mean, uh, it's, it differs from project to project. Some clients prefer like the text study, it's like, it's like five, uh, 50 to 80 pages of text summary, where you basically uh, summarize the findings of the study progress. Uh, some of the clients like to publish those uh, findings as a, like a, a PR marketing thing in the, in the way of like, look, we, our insurance company is very, very far ahead and we know the future. Uh, they won't tell the press that this study actually is from two years ago, but is still 10 years ahead. <laughs> but, um, the other thing can be, of course, those findings can be summarized in an executive summary and uh, someone makes a film for intern purposes for the employers or the employees um, out of it. So it is also like a little bit familiar or a little bit next to the science fiction community It's the same tools uh, from time to time. Yeah, but that's basically like the scientific approach. So uh, the scientific method basically relies on that you are able to like do document the progress of a study, that you are able to replicate those stuff where it gets a little, little bit nifty already because in, in any social science, it's very hard to replicate the mathematicians or f uh, biologic researchers. They already are uh, like fighting the fight against the social sciences because you can't measure social things. And uh, if I ask you uh, the same questions today and in a year, you will definitely give different answers. So it's, it's all about being quick in taking a snapshot, basically, of the future's images inside the heads of decision makers and then make up your own mind and um, put that stuff into the next decade. And I'm really interested, what do you personally see as the biggest challenge in the process applying future science in companies or organizations? I guess one of the biggest challenges is or might be that still today in, in the year 2021, living inside one of the biggest and, and most complex transitions or transformations uh, humankind has ever experienced, most of the companies don't really account for change. They still are made or being structured in terms of stability. I don't know how, how you felt that, but in, in the past months, many articles or also like events had the headline of resilience. We need to become more resilient which by the meaning of the word actually means uh, being more, more stable against outside changes. And it, it's being used at the moment for some kind of PR phrase to actually imply that you are more agile and be uh, more flexible to 
to align to change. But that's actually not the, the, the meaning of the word. But I think the companies or most of the organizations, including like public uh, sector institutions, have like the or a part of their code is being stable or being very, very strict against outside changes, which has one one very good reason, and that, which is like survival. But on the other hand, we've learned over the past, I think, 20 to 30 years from very good thinkers that being agile in, a, in an organizational sense is actually the number one survival factor in the 21st century. But also, and this is, it, it leads into an organizational schizophrenia that also like this, like aligning to an agile workforce or a labor market also like is one of those changes from the outside, which has to be like fought against. And that's where, where, I, where I came to the conclusion a couple of years ago that these 2020s, this current decade is going to be the decade which most likely will be remembered as the decade where most of the companies and organizations failed and they died because they weren't prepared for change. And this, that's actually very tragic because there are so many people involved and, and working for those uh, companies, especially in, in, the, in Central Europe. We have such a strong middle class of companies and there are so many like yeah, jobs involved in, in those companies and they are really doing a bad job in coping with change. And we've known that for a couple of years and this pandemic as like a multi-crisis basically yeah, showed that nothing was prepared, although so many people from the scientific community to NGOs, I don't know, to the society warned heavily that some things are coming like a pandemic. And I, I wasn't really surprised. I don't know. Uh, I, I think from the, the futures community, no one really was surprised that there's now the, this pandemic. And we were like, okay, let's keep going. And then a month later, we were like, okay, where are the plans? Oh, yeah, you have some plans, right? Oh, you don't? Fuck. <laughs> so I was like, damn it. Yeah, so I think that's my point or my two cents uh, to that discussion. The, the companies are lost, basically. And I talked to so many big corporations and even uh, even the C-level uh, managers, they know that. They know that they are unable to change, to transform from from a partially century-long company to an agile network of, I don't know, teams and bubbles and holacracy stuff, that's just not doable, especially for highly regulated things like insurance, like financial industry, like mobility, automotive and stuff. It's just too much. And the new players in the field, let's say Tesla or I don't know, Trade Republic, they are agile because they started off from a from plain field. And that's a totally different story. I fully agree with you. So what came up just now is that one of my friends who was used to be uh, until recently in the C-suite position in a big Austrian company and very successful, got multiple awards for his position in, in his industry. I don't want to say more because I don't want to uncover who it is, of course. But he actually made the company agile and he was kicked out now. So wow. that's it's very interesting no? because he was super successful and it's a very conservative company and actually during the time where you would need someone like this person to be become the second most important person next to the ceo they kick, kick them out and i see this a lot and and not exactly like this but i see a lot of what you said that uh, a lot of companies will not survive and uh, a lot of companies try to be stable and resilient in the way that you say it and what comes up for me when i think of that is basically I always, like many people, use the metaphor of the, the caterpillar becoming a butterfly, the metamorphosis. And like um, this idea of being, be, being stable and more resilient is when actually the metamorphosis is already going on and the cells are in the cocoon and, and they decide they want to be stable and they want to, they want to hold on and uh, go back to the old normal. Hmm. What happens is exactly that, they die because they need to be agile, let's use this word now also in this metaphor, and actually become the new thing with the essence of the past, but become the new thing. So first of all, they become, they unfold their potential and also to survive. And the reality is that out of 400 eggs of butterflies, only about eight survive and become 
butterflies again. Mm. So it's uh, like 2%. And mm. I wouldn't say that only 2% of the companies will survive now. Definitely not. Because when we talk about eggs, not all of these eggs become actually caterpillars, of course. But yes, there will be a lot of companies who really hold on and hold back because of fear, because of the, the, the intention of security, the value of security, and also because of being delusional that they will, a lot will not survive. So basically, yeah, that's my two cents at the moment. Mm. And what I always say, I also want to add that I think that we globally are in a kind of uh, state of psychosis. And, and the positive thing about psychosis that most people don't actually know is that psychosis, if people go through psychosis in a healthy way, they actually, it exactly happens the same thing that you have with, with uh, butterflies and caterpillars. They actually come out on the other end in a very different way and are no normal again, so to say, but on a different level. So most mm. people don't actually know that. And uh, that's why I like to compare it. I'm really interested what you see that the pandemic means for us as societies, as a humanity. I hope, I hope actually, that's not based on scientific research now. I hope that society is able to really step back a little and analyze the situation. Because as you just said, psychosis can lead to a better state as well as horrific car accidents or so can, but they can also lead to trauma if I don't really deal with a situation and that's work to be done. And I think that's that's not the, the most preferred way most people like to act. And now we have the same thing on the table for us as a collective intelligence, like um, the collective mind now needs to learn and it also needs needs to heal on the other hand, because I think um, what the, the many micro accidents or the micro shocks and traumata which happen during the pandemic that don't get it to be on the headlines of a, of a big paper, newspaper or so, or the blogs. Those are the things that, that really um, nourish my sorrows in, in terms of like the, the post-COVID scenarios for me often are based on, on an insecure, still very uncertain society. And at least back in history, always when societies were very insecure and very unstable, and even the elites, the like the established community of political leaders or so, uh, were insecure. What happened then? We all know that a hundred years ago or so, we had the situation just after the First World War, then we had the Second World War in highly insecure societies and with very fights like under the bottom, like under the, the surface between elites like conservative and liberal and progressive, I don't know, uh, the scientific community, the religious community and stuff. And that led to people being like not really happy. And then they listen to those demagogues, like Hitler was one, or I don't know, they, they go to war. They send their children literally to go to war and they know that they're not going to come back. And I think this is like the, the ultimate state of psychosis, like a, co a collective psychosis maybe, that you're so desperate and also like economic factors aside, but uh, you're so desperate that you're you're ready to like, um, yeah, send your kids to war or participate in a war against some enemy, like virtual enemy in most of the cases. And we've seen that in the past years, uh, this year as well, also in, in Israel again, uh, then we had the Azerbaijan conflict, we had so many satellite conflicts, which like for me, show that even like the Cold War never really ended. It's just not up on the newspapers since 1989, because someone, some actually uh, a very smart scientist said that this is going to be like the end of history, <laughs> like the, the end of the clash of two systems. That's ridiculous. I mean, uh, seen from now, just nothing changed. It's, it was just the conflict lines changed. But getting back to the topic, I think um, it's a very dark scenario in, in the future that we won't be able to learn from this shock, this collective shock. And I think the, the most, well, one of the most important things, I mean, of course, I'm a future scientist, but one of the most important things we, we need to anticipate at least or um, speak out loud more often is the fact of times thinking. Because I think still, we at least in the global north, we have made like such huge progress in the past 20, uh, 200 or 250 years, but also like very many downsides. I know we all know that in terms of sustainability and societal justice. 
But on the other hand, we've made such a huge progress in terms of like we have at least good functioning laws. We have the police, we have like politicians, we have corporations who are able to deliver so much stuff into our supermarkets that we can simply every day go there between seven in the morning and I don't know, 10 in the evening and just buy stuff from all over the world, which is actually great. But so many people don't really realize that this is something to be grateful for. And so if something changes in, in, the, in the daily routines, they they are unhappy and then they're angry and then they yell at each other and then they say that those migrants are are subject to our policy because it's just nuts that they come to our country and want to steal our jobs and our wives and our, I don't know. Like these never narratives nourish on the ground of unhappy people and ungrateful people. And I think this is really closely connected to thinking times differently. And, and thereby I mean this whole thing we call history is not a linear story we can tell. And it's also not, and greetings to my history teacher back then, uh, it's also not something that repeats all over again. Of course, you can always compare things to each other. You can even compare bananas and apples. And I think that's cool. But I think we need to learn it. We need to understand better the spiral dynamics and the the times, like the levels we are leveraging in, in the past decades, because what we are heading towards possibly can be something very cool for everyone. Even if we, we are going to be like around 10 billion people in the world in a, a few decades, and some people still believe that we are not able to feed even the people we have right now. No, that is something we, we need to discuss definitely and publicly as well. It's all about justice and it's all about what we value as, as a being and not just human beings. It starts with human beings and we need to try to, to uh, in my opinion, to make it affordable for every person in the world to have access to water, to food, to schools, to clinics, health systems and stuff like that. But it's not that easy, obviously. And on the other hand, we don't, uh, we, we don't or we, we must not forget to grant certain planetary beings like the planet itself, Mother Earth, which nourishes us, which keeps us alive, basically, which um, is part of the universe. Without the, the sun, we would have we, we would totally be bunked. Without the moon, we would have some problems. Uh, without forests, clean air, birds, bees, I don't know, stuff like that. It's so big and so complex. But we should grant those planetary beings rights, just like it happened a few months ago in New Zealand when rivers became just as persons. Which, which is a very big effort in for climate activists. But New Zealand is not really like the biggest country in the world. It's good that things are starting to change. But as long as it's not forbidden to throw plastic into the rivers, to put like chemistry waste, like BASF or Bayer or stuff like that, companies like that, they're doing it all the time. Or Nestle is still purchasing water sources in th in those regions where most of the people are basically dying from from too less water and corporations like that they just don't get the idea of a holistic society humankind and i think that's one of the things we need to address more often and not just in the activist way because at least for me that's not um the right way of phrasing it but like in a way that really can change things or address like regulatory changes that need to be taken so that our children or uh, grandchildren generation will have the planet to where it's like uh, nice to live on and not just uh, where everyone's in this in the state of a refugee all the time and uh, the climate cat catastrophe basically destroys all the the ground for plants and things we could live from that's something i call the uh, leviathanoth scene it's like translated into, uh, to English. So Leviathan or Le Leviathan, I don't know, this um, ancient creature, which was like then in, in the 17th century, used by Thomas Hobbes to describe the this sovereignty or the uh, the dictators of that time, basically of the monarchy. And he wanted to like picture like this destructive force with this ancient figure. And I think the other term which is being used for the, the scientific term for climate change or this age we are living in right now is the Anthropocene. 
which uh, implies that humans are responsible for climate change and like geological change, which which is already undergo uh, since some centuries, not even um, starting with the industrialization, but some centuries ago. But I don't agree with that idea because it implies that every human being, that the human nature implies that we like to destroy nature and that we like to change the planetary boundaries, which is, I think, not the case. If you would do a poll, like uh, conduct random interviews with people on the street or just uh, type in some numbers in your smartphone and call someone and you ask all those people the same question. Would you agree that destroying the planet is cool? I think barely n everyone would agree that's a very shitty idea. But still in organizations and uh, organizations have like those boundaries and constraints uh, set by uh, regulatory rules by the society, essentially. Those organizations are responsible for those changes and they can't just simply stop doing what they're doing. And I understand that. So we like need to anticipate this, that as well if we build our future scenarios. Yeah, long story short, I think rethinking times and priorities in terms of like what is really really essential to surviving and like living more than to survive is, is very crucial for our generations so we're basically now at the core of what this podcast is about which paradigms do you think need to be challenged for a better future first i think that's the first principle or paradigm is that there's no, not going to be an artificial intelligence that is able to rescue us in our situation or to doom us, at least not in the next couple of centuries. Because I, I have the strong feeling that whenever I go to a, um, an event or, or write an article or something um, about or involving artificial intelligence systems, which is basically machine or deep learning systems, people somehow expect, especially from non-IT industry, of course, they expect me to say or to tell them that uh, someday there's going to be a president or a, I don't know, chancellor or like everything's going to be automated by an AI because there's the super, uh, super intelligence approaching us. And after spending really many days or weeks or months, I don't know, studying this topic and talking to many experts in, in the field of AI and IT, I, I lost like confidence in those scenarios because um, even if we can somehow simulate human brains by by computers by the speed of the transistors and the cpu and stuff like that even then it's absolutely very unlikely that those machines are able to be conscious i think i won't go more into detail but but having said that this is one of the big paradigms where i think many industries or decision makers as well and also normal private persons expect the progress of technology to somehow land it's like be it's necessary like a necessary output that we're going to have a super intelligent ai agent that rescues or even dooms something and it either either leads to a state of i don't know like waiting for what's it called not jesus but like the big messiahs like the big messiahs right uh, so just waiting and it's going to be cool someday so we can still pollute the environment or we can still go to uh, nine to five jobs and do things just as we did before we as long as i don't need to change everything's going to be cool so this is the one big fraction and the other big fraction is may uh, i interrupt you here for one moment yeah, sure. because it's interesting what what you're saying and i agree with the second part definitely that I mean, we have responsibility, and uh, we cannot hope and wait for artificial intelligence or various artificial intelligences. So also, I mean, there's already multiple artificial intelligences mm -hmm. that we cannot wait and hope that they will make it better. So I think mm -hmm. that's completely the the wrong approach. And also, from my research, I, what I realize is that that uh, they're actually going to be like us. They're not going to be better than us because we teach them. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the second problem. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the first thing you said about artificial intelligence, I like uh, the people I talk to also on this podcast, they actually do agree on that it is around, not centuries to come. Okay. And that also both of, I had two people on this podcast, both professors in the US in artificial intelligence, and both of them actually say artificial intelligence does already have consciousness. Okay, and that's interesting. Also, yeah. also one of them, Dekai, who is also a musician, and he is actually one of the people who was of like very crucial, influential early pioneers of machine learning. He explains that the shift from 
old school AI, let's call it this way, and and what is now machine learning actually came through the paradigm of creativity. So there's actually this idea that AIs cannot be creative, but the, the it seems to be the fact, but there's, as you say, you talk to experts, I talk to experts, and then uh, there's different opinions, of course. of course. I'm not an expert when it comes to artificial intelligence. I just make my research, like mm. you. And of course, people say the very different things. So I think for me, I, 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 I was uh, very surprised when they actually, I wasn't so much surprised about the creativity part, mm. but I was really surprised about the conscious part that they say, yeah, artificial intelligence is already conscious, but That's a very so different yeah. conscious, very different consciousness maybe to what we compare consciousness now but then mm. the question is once artificial intelligence becomes uh, super intelligent yeah? general mm. artificial intelligence what then is with the consciousness that i just wanted to add that in a way that there's different opinions when it comes to this point but definitely what i agree with you is that we cannot hope that we we can just continue polluting uh, mm. the environment and doing all this stuff and they they will fix it for us anyway so yeah like definitely like wally <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> someone needs to uh, get it done yeah but uh, i totally agree with you um, and there are of course the positions that that emphasize that things we actually can't really explain sometimes appear to be like consciousness or creativity or i don't know stuff like that i, I think the point is that what comes into the minds of people in the society, let it be through science fiction or through the daily news or YouTube videos, I don't know. Then the, then, then we have these two positions I was just trying to explain. So the first one is like waiting and wishing. And the second one, and it's like just two of many positions, but those are, I think, the, the most contrary positions. And the other one is like being afraid. And especially in Germany, we have, I think, more conservatism compared to some other neighboring countries in Europe for a couple of reasons. But the one thing is that this matches pretty perfectly being afraid of AI. Because we all know these uh, scientific science fiction movies, and I love many of them, but in, in many of these narratives, the AI somehow or someday turns bad. But to be honest, I'm more afraid of some North Korean dictator who has a narrow AI weapons and who's able to sense, I don't know, South Korean or Chinese or even uh, Austrian or German people and simply kill them. That's doable and that's not intelligent. That's just like a copy of some totally weird person's aims and goals. Maybe I can recommend a cool book I, I would strongly recommend in, in this topic from Max Tegmark. He wrote the book Life 3.0 and there he has all these positions like in, in a matrix. Uh, and talks about these positions. And I think from what, what I remember from the book, he tries not to position himself in this uh, very matrix. It's more about getting to know all the ideas that are out there. But I think somehow maybe he influenced my, my expectancy or my view on how AI might someday, and it's going to happen. That's that's undoubtedly, but I think um, that we have like more rather centuries than years or decades until we are at that state. Of course, it could be like this. I just cited that mm. it's interesting that in the AI scene, there's so many different opinions. Absolutely. So there's really a spectrum. And this is the one thing. And of course, I mean, when we look at the whole scene now, of course, there's people also who say things uh, because of ideology, some people who say mm. things because it makes them become more interesting, because they get more funding, you know, and so on and so forth. It's really hard to tell also. Yeah? Absolutely. So, there is, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley, they say it's around in 20 years. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we most likely will be around to see and will be exciting Absolutely. to see if this <laughs> happens or not. <laughs> Yet, and, and this is exactly, I think what you said is we really cannot hope that the Messiah comes and fixes mm -hmm. it for us. Totally. And if, if I may add just one thing, uh, I think speaking for myself in, in my own interest, I, I need to at least keep this expectancy up, I think, until 2030, because one of my current projects, which is going to be published around the end of the year, is dealing exactly with the labor market or the workforce and the influence of AI in different industries. So, for example, mobility or industries, different industries. And this is going to be like published in the, at the end of the year. And we work with a pretty narrow definition of AI, which is also being used by the European Commission. And we also have the, the German Center for AI Research on board, the DFKI. And they share this definition. And I think at least until 2030, I'll be around for underlining the, the narrow <laughs> expectancy. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, you were also saying something you wanted to bring up a different topic as oh, well, yeah. paradigm-wise. I, I think still, um, I mentioned it before, but it's so important uh, that we need to go into detail or at least underline it again. Thinking in times differently also has one one dimension of uh, mindfulness, I think. So we as a collective, uh, we experienced now this shock in, uh, very differently in, in different cultures or milieus or continents even, or as someone more digital or less digital. If, if you have like a news ticker on your smartphone and you're being like bombarded with all these facts about Corona or COVID-19 all the time, it's a very different perception as someone who like reads the daily newspaper maybe and sometimes he's uh, or watches the the television news at 8 p.m it's going to be like very different and even, i mean think of people who are like constantly uh, writing comments or hate speech even on, on twitter and stuff like that so the the range is very high but scientists suggest already that we need to use or maybe even emphasize the loss of pace so the deceleration, basically, which was caused by lockdowns or, or shutdowns or stuff like that, because it's sometimes even for someone like me, who is actually, I believe, very fast minded and sometimes I am not able to speak as fast as I think. And many people have that issue, but my time I, or other put other way, when I think of the past year, of about how many things happened, how many paradigms for myself have maybe changed or at least nuances have, re have, have been realigned. And it's not just this year in particular, but like for every year. I think I experienced so many things because I learned very at the young age how to be more self-aware, how to be more mindful with situations. I embraced practicing at least a little bit of yoga very unregularly, <laughs> to be honest, when I was around 20 years old. And I never got into that thinking of like perceiving yoga or alternative approaches to workouts or breathing techniques or so as being something like esoteric, spiritual. Uh, I, I just thought on my own, it's it's cool, it works. I'm around one, uh, one May, 185 tall. So that's not too tall, but back pain started very early for me and also knee pain because I like to do sports, but also very unregularly. Um, so I had these physical traits and I thought yoga is a nice thing. So I took that and practiced it like whenever it works and it's cool and it, it strengthened my body. Then I dove deeper into that breathing technique stuff. I don't know the names of that, but when I'm about to go to on a stage, like this moment you need to do showtime. You sit there in the audience or backstage and like the, the moderator or the anchorman is preparing your speech or your like entertainment. You. Yeah, exactly. And you listen to that and uh, a lot of people like get nervous then. But it's all a matter of preparation, of course, on the one hand. And, and then this breathing techniques kick in and you just like do that and you're cool. And your brain is totally there. And uh, for me, every, everything after that happens in slow motion, basically. So I'm, I observe the audience while I am talking and I think about myself, how to walk to which position in the room next, or if it's now the right time to do a joke, or I don't know, because I, I like to improve, uh, improvise a lot uh, during my talks. And that all are some aspects that are doable after you acknowledged yourself being a very self-aware being. And looking back in history, it's it's not that old, the idea of the enlightenment. Everyone can be like self-aware and can change their own um, biography and uh, learn whatever they want and do, do a job with, uh, whichever they want. And a lot of people or more and more people are able to do that. But we still have like communities or countries, like for instance, like uh, Pakistan, where we have this beautiful story of Malala, a very inspiring uh, girl who wanted just to have like education, basic education. And she wasn't actually able to do that because you know, the Taliban regime was there. And they were well, are still proclaiming today that education is not made for females. But on the other hand, we have this story and we have this person who, who did it and who was able to get out of that system and become part of the other, I don't know, community, the global citizenship, I, uh, I think. Because when I learned something about uh, like humanism 2.0, we could phrase it like that, that some or like everyone should have equal rights, equal opportunities, equal I don't know, not equal payment. That's not the case, uh, or that's that's not the, the topic. I think equality comes from very individual biographies, but 
like the access to education should be uh, should be there for every being and it starts with i don't know basic human rights it starts with basic uh, internet connection which we still cope with here in germany because it's still so slow and we have so many regions where we don't have uh, fast internet but i don't know you get the idea and that all all that i think starts with a very broad understanding of mindfulness of what it means to be not just in the moment but also for myself being in future scenarios being in the history scenarios being with friends being with family being with people i don't know i haven't seen before or even people who want to harm me i also dealt with a lot of very very scary situations i've, I've been traveling around before the covid pandemic uh, into many many countries like also involving very dark streets somewhere in Cape Town or in, in Medellin or I don't know I've been to China and experienced for the first time what it means to be discriminated discriminated against and it's I think so powerful to do all these things and to get to know the world including issues and um, challenges as well as ch chances and opportunities and people <laughs> primarily people uh, to get uh, to know those people better and to understand their pains and And every perspective changes drastically whenever you move beyond boundaries. Maybe like the boundary of your hometown, or it starts with your flat or your house. Maybe you live in a valley. Uh, maybe you should someday leave that valley. Sometimes you should leave the the country or even the continent. Or I don't know, go to a sailing boat and sail to New York. I, I heard that this should be a trend right now <laughs> through Friday Fridays for future stuff. I don't know. I think, and that's the last sentence, that it's important to embrace different or also differing or competing perspectives but stay respectful um, in contrast or for the environment like other people and as long as that is granted i think we shouldn't have any more conflicts anymore but that's a long way to go still my final question is really when you fast forward 100 years from now and looking back when people think of you what do you want people to be saying about you Wow, that's a very powerful question. I hope they're still sad that I passed away some five years ago. So that implies that I've obviously lived longer than a hundred years. <laughs> But then I, I will have taken the, the decision on, on my own to leave this planet to make space for other generations. I think most of the ideas I love to spread, they change over time in the first place. And in the second place, there are so many ideas or movements or changes I'd like to, or processes I'd like to initiate in the in, in people's minds that are not really linked to my person. I, I love that one, one entrepreneur, he's around 63 years old, I met him four years ago or so, he's still so grateful that we met back then. And in two weeks from now, so in the end of June, We will share the same stage for the first time because after that he he started his own business from being like a, a c-level manager from a company in the west of germany and now he's like a freelancer on his own and, and does like purposeful things or meaningful things for him and he's still so grateful and sometimes he he uses to tweet about that on twitter and write things like and still thank you kai gondlach uh, that you showed me this path and i'm still so lucky having him or having had the chance to embrace change and futures and stuff like that and of course i love that it's better than any any fee some client can pay me for a keynote or for a i don't know for a book or so actually i'm so totally generation y i don't care about money i just care about ideas and like seeing the spark in the eyes of my audience and that's so cool so if i could choose it would probably be that in 100 years or so people would still remember some encounterment with me i don't know where if it's been on a, on a stage or in a lobby or in the train i'm driving so much train so the chances to meet me at the train are very high <laughs> so like in such a conversation that the people say that's so cool because I, i started rethinking things and he didn't give me the answer to my live question but but it was like he showed me at least a couple of doors And I found out after that that this was the right door. And if it wasn't, I don't care anymore because it was the right door afterwards because of, of what I made from it. That's actually the only thing I'd, I'd like to be remembered. Great. Thank you very much.
<laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> it was a great conversation. I hope I have you back one day to continue. Yeah, same. Thank you so much for having me, Sexist here. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for staying tuned for this edition of Challenging Paradigm X. If you like this episode with Kai Gondlach, feel free to share it with your community so Kai's message gets spread even further. In the show notes, you'll find the links to Kai's work. Please hit subscribe and rate my podcast if you like it. I'd also be very glad if you write me a review. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. Next week, we are up with another edition of Challenging Paradigm X. Until then, I wish you a great week.